You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. Thank you, Wes and Hannah. Thanks to our readers, too. Bethany from Zoom, I appreciate that. hear that line in the song we sang, what does John the Baptist do prepares the way for the Lord? I'm thinking about preparation and how we prepare for Jesus to arrive, because again, Advent means arrival, and how we prepare for even in our own homes, in our own lives, how we prepare for Christmas. I like getting the house ready for Christmas a lot. There's things, like I made Christmas cookies. I made, I, made a, I made a set of Christmas cookies this week and there's more that will come. I like preparing for the season that way and, and eating cookies too. Um, and this week I was also imagining with a friend how extravagant I could make the house. Like, I, 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 I like walking into, I go to Lowe's for some reason all the time, and I like walking in there, and there's Christmas music playing, and there's a lot of lights and things that, like, like blow up, you know, so there's a lot, the one on, and I, you know, I don't have the kind of house that could, like, I don't have, like, a lawn particularly, um, so, like, I don't have, like, room for, like, Santa and reindeer, but I, I, I do imagine, you know, what would it look like if I could have blimps in my front lawn? That would be a good way to prepare. I like seeing all the Christmas displays. Did you ever go on 13th Street in South Philly? What's it called? Miracle. There's like a block on 13th Street, Miracle on 13th Street, where all these neighbors, like they have lights, they have some, they're collaborating with each other, and you, they're plugging into different people's houses. It's real nice. I like that. I like that sense of preparation. You know, I loved my time working at Christmas Candy Lane in Hershey Park in my youth. And in fact, that is where, because I was there for hours at a time, like just dozens of hours during the winter time, and we'd hear Christmas music playing. That's how I developed a love for Christmas music. Far from despising it by the end of the season, I wanted more of it, which is why I like playing Christmas music. So I love the holidays, the joy, the mirth, the hope that precedes them. And I love the anticipation, the expectation. The idea that you're counting down the days until Jesus is born or until you get to open your gifts. So children help us with this too. Pay attention to how kids wait. It helps us to wait too and to be patient too. So I love the joy in the air and I love that moment. I love that moment when... Uh, Jack the Pumpkin King, familiar with this person? Shows up in Christmas Town in the Nightmare Before Christmas, asking, What's this? Whole new thing that's happening, right? I like that. That moment where you get some freedom from death. So, one reason I love preparing for the holidays is because it prepares me for the joy that's to come. It prepares me for the big day, it prepares me for the big feast. And 
in the United States, there isn't a lot of preparation for the big feast because I think we really start this season during Thanksgiving, so feasting is already happening, and we just kind of carry it over until the holiday. I would just say, enter into that. Don't try to like fast during Advent, even if that's like technically what we're supposed to do. Just go, just go have a good time, because that's, a, you know what I mean? Like, what are we doing? How are you going to fight it? But there are things that we can do to prepare. So I love that aspect of the season. You know, I love like when it begins to look a lot like Christmas. When it's time to haul out the holly, right? That moment when people are, it's getting bigger and more, more exciting, that's happening. That's a good way for you to prepare, even if you can't do lament the whole time. When you can start playing music, meal planning, prepping, wassailing, eating rich food, you can make eggnog now. That would be good on Christmas. So you can, you can, you can have it, well, it's only like, what is it, 20 days away. So we're close as it is. You want to do a 30-day eggnog or like a three-year eggnog, if you're me. But there's lots of opportunities for you to do this. So talk to me about how to prepare for the holiday. I've been doing it for a long time. So I want to be able to see, because I, I, I want to have some hope too. Yesterday I was in Center City and I was stuck in traffic and cursing the traffic. And then I learned that the reason that I was in traffic is because there was a holiday parade. So that I, I want to receive the joy of the people as, they, as they're doing something too. So seeing how they prepare for the holiday helps me prepare too. And not saying seeing their joy and, and, and eclipsing it with my cynicism. They're longing for joy. They're waiting for something. I know the one they're waiting for. I can enter into, into it with you. Advent gives us a chance to prepare for the birth of the Savior, most importantly. It also gives us a chance to wait for Jesus to return again, because we're in our own Advent as we wait the return of Jesus. So just like the prophets and John the Baptist, and we sung about Mary tonight, we're waiting for their Messiah. We're also waiting too for the Messiah to come, for liberation to come. For John the Baptist, the arrival of the Messiah is a joyous occasion for the downtrodden. But a genuine horror for those who could not lay down their power. That reckoning that Malachi was telling us about in the beginning of the meeting that Julius read, that's a good thing for those who need a reckoning. And it could be trouble for those who fear one. Those, these two things are happening. Okay? And that's a good way to enter into the scripture too. If you feel troubled by the, the, the coming justice and judgment of the Lord. You know, John the Baptist has a word for you. For John the Baptist and the writer of the Gospel of Luke, the coming of the Messiah was a deeply political event that challenges the empire and changes the whole world. The political framing of the arrival of Jesus is really clear in the text that we read. Bethany read it to us, and, it, and, and even as she was reading it, and we're learning new words and names that we don't say, you might even wonder, why, why is this important? 
these specific names. Why do they matter? In the 15th year, the reign of the Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was the ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, the ruler of the region of Iteria, and Trachonitis, Lysanias, the ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Why, why are we reading that? Why, why those verses? Why those names? Why does that matter? Because the writer start, he starts with the emperor, and then he moves to the governor of Judea, Pilate, and then to the ruler of the town of Galilee. So he's going big, smaller, smaller. All the political rulers are mentioned, right? So like Joe Biden, Tom Wolf, um, Mayor Kenny, that's our mayor right now. Lord help us. So, <laughs> same kind of deal that's happening. And then he goes also to the brother, his brother Herod's brothers, Philip, and then and the other governors as well. And then he moves then to the Jewish leaders too, to Caiaphas and Annas. So what's happening there? The writer is framing it politically. Why is he mentioning political leaders and, and, and religious leaders? And by the way, in the Bible, there's no distinction between the political and the religious. They're the same. Same thing, no difference. In the United States, there is, but that's a lie. They're also the same. Um, so the writer is framing this as a political event because, the, because he is about to supply something or someone that replaces the political order. That's what's happening. Here are all the leaders, and then what happens? The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That despite all these other people, the word of God came through John, son of Zechariah, John the Baptist, in the wilderness. In the midst of this deeply political setting arrives the word of God to John the Baptist. And where does the word of God come from? The wilderness. Why is the wilderness important? Because it's not in the metro. It's not in the main area. It's, in, it's from the margins. It's the other side of the Jordan River, right? Something new is happening. And it's coming from a different place. Location matters. It's not coming where all the political power is. It's coming from somewhere else. So the location of this political activity and political order is different. It comes from a marginalized area away from political power and it comes to prepare the way for a new political power. How does John the Baptist prepare the way? How does he prepare the way for the Lord? He calls people to baptism of repentance for their sins to be forgiven. Repentance means turning away and doing something new. To actively wait for Jesus to return means that we change who we are according to his way and his order. Jesus is coming to undo the political order of the world and undo the political order within us. Because we are also politically ordered. John the Baptist quotes Isaiah as he prepares for the way of the Lord. This quotation right here comes from um, Isaiah 40. 
And that's the first chapter of what we call Second Isaiah, or Deutero-Isaiah. Isaiah is a big book in the Old Testament. It has three parts. Okay? The first part of Isaiah, called First Isaiah, happens before Babylon conquers Judah. The second part happens after Babylon conquers Judah. So it's exilic. It's in exile. And then the third part is uh, post-exilic. Like Malachi, for that matter. Anyway, we're in the first section of the exilic part of when captivity happens. And in that section of the book, the prophet is writing for the hopeful future of liberation. John the Baptist seizes the prophecy and names himself as the one making a way for the Lord. So, the writer of Isaiah is telling people in exile, liberation is coming. Not naming Jesus here yet, so don't jump to that. We read this in light of Jesus, just like John the Baptist is. But these people are hoping for a promise, hoping for liberation. Just like we are now, as we await our own liberation. So, we also read this passage, not just awaiting for the baby Savior to come on Christmas, but also for the Savior to come and liberate us now, because we're in our own captivity. You feel me? So there's four different ways that we're reading this passage from Isaiah 40. One, like we're uh, Judea, Judeans in, uh, or Judahites, you would say, in captivity, under Babylonian captivity. Like John the Baptist coming out from the wilderness, waiting for the Messiah to come, not even sure what that means. Like Christians waiting for Jesus to come on Christmas, and like Christians waiting for Jesus to come again. Four different ways are happening with those verses that are thousands of years old. We're entering into that tradition. John the Baptist seizes the prophecy and names himself as the one making a way for the Lord. The voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's a good, if you're doing a Christmas card this year, send that to your grandma. That's a good Christmas passage, in my opinion. We have to sort through this in our house because sometimes I, you know, I pick things that aren't very uh, jolly. Um, how do we make a way? How do we make a way for the Lord? We repent, which makes our paths straight and direct. We fill the valleys. We lower the hills. Flattens things out. This has explicitly economic and political consequences. We smooth out what is rough. We straighten out what is crooked. And through that, the world sees how God is saving the world, right? Saving the whole earth. We do the work of God to prepare for the kingdom to come so that people can name Jesus as their Lord. We do this work so that people know Jesus is Lord. It points to Jesus. Incredibly, it's not just forgiveness that saves these people. It's their repentance, the result of which is good fruit. The passage goes on, and I am never satisfied, so allow me to go on too, okay? I'm going to keep going. Breaking out of the uh, lectionary this week because I wanted more. John the Baptist is about to change their whole lives. So he's leading the way. Jewish people approach him, and his rage is clear. He calls them a brood of vipers, which Jesus will later call them. 
See how angry John is? See how unafraid John is to tell the truth? We have a truth-telling problem. If the truth feels impolite, we don't say it. That's rude. You don't say it. You're going to offend somebody. I can't believe the truth you told me. You didn't say it in love. John the Baptist calls him a brood of vipers. He's unconcerned about the response of the people he's preaching to because he wants to deliver the truth and they should know better. Why should they know better? Because you're the heirs of Abraham. You're not new. You've been around for a while. You're not ignorant. You know this. Prophets can be like that and so they're often uh, hated in their own hometowns. They're told they're impolite or not acting in love. But these are ways to silence them and the power of this message. Listen to this. I think I have the passage. John said to the crowds that came to, out to be baptized by him because they heard he's baptizing people. There's repentance, forgiveness of sins. Let's go see him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Not an inviting message, folks. <laughs> who warned you of the wrath to come? Someone comes to say sorry and then you say that. <laughs> bear fruits worthy of repentance he's saying you want to, if you want this then bear fruits worthy of repentance don't begin to say to yourselves we, should, we have Abraham as our ancestor for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham even now the axe is lying at the root of the tree every tree therefore, therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire He actually wonders who warned them to be saved. But the baptism alone doesn't save them. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Show us your life that has changed. And this actually works quite well in our Anabaptist tradition because our, our, our baptism doesn't save us. It expresses our salvation, right? There's nothing special about the water in the Wissahickon. But it's good that it's living water. It's good that we're in not the YMCA, I think. But there's no special Holy Spirit administration of grace happening there. It's an expression of it. And then you bear the fruits of it. Because your heritage isn't good enough. Where's your family from? Unimportant. That's what John the Baptist says. Doesn't matter who your family is. Stop clinging to your family. Doesn't matter if you came from a special family, anywhere. There's no old money, doesn't matter here. Doesn't matter who you're from, what your history is, how it works. Special family in the church, doesn't matter. You don't get, that's not how it works. That's what John the Baptist is saying. When we cling to these different things that order us, and our families order us, our, our nuclear family orders us, and our heritage orders us. And John the Baptist is disrupting that, saying it doesn't matter. I can use these rocks to bring about God, not just your family. The heirs of the covenant, they can be raised from stones. They aren't important anymore. That will not save you here. Only your fruit will. You repent, be baptized, bear fruit. John goes on, if you don't bear fruits of repentance, if you don't have outcomes for repentance, then you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. John knows that to prepare the way for the Lord, we have to repent and show our work. Your prayers of salvation aren't good enough. 
Even the demons believe that, believe that there is only one true God and they, uh, what do they say? They shiver, they uh, quake, tremble. We need to have tangible outcomes for our faith that showcase our repentance and forgiveness. So of course the crowd asks the same question I ask when I read this. What should they do? So what do we do? We're here. What do we do? What's the answer? What then should we do? In reply, he said, she said to them, whoever has two coats, co coats must share with anyone who has none. Whoever has food must do likewise as well. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. And they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. What does it mean then to make paths straight, the rough smooth, the valleys filled, the mountains lowered? See, what I love about this is you can read the passage from Isaiah and you can think, oh, that can be about anything. Maybe it's about my psyche, maybe it's about like a personal posture of humility, and maybe it is about that too. But then when they ask him, he gives them very clear instructions. This is the interpretation. Very clear, redistribute your money. Don't use your power to collect more than you earn. Receive a fair wage. Don't use your violence to extort people for more. Right? That's what's happening. It's real plain, folks. That's what Jesus is doing. That's why this is such a political and economic thing that's happening. Jesus makes it clear that the way forward is economic distribution. Economic redistribution and generosity, almsgiving. It is not then a surprise, in my opinion, that this ethic, in some perverted form, now bear with me, makes its way into even this Christmas season. Right? Isn't so much of the Christ Christmas mythology, you watch enough Christmas movies, you see this, around like philanthropy and generosity and even redistribution? Like what's that Christmas carol? There's a greedy dude, goes to visit him, and then he gives, like, that's the whole thing. It's right there. It's in the spirit of it, right? I think it is. So the ethic stays with us now, too. As a church, we're wondering how to divest from our wealth and power. We're wondering about how to make sure our money is where our mouth is. Our money, uh, are we put our money where our mouth is, that's the phrase. And so we are considering what to do with discriminatory institutions that we donate to now in this budgeting season. What do we do with institutions that won't hire LGBTQIA people? How do we ask queer people to donate to them? An institution that discriminates against them. How, how, how can we answer that question? We don't know yet. So we're entering a season of discernment about what to do. And for now, we're proposing that we just put the money in a reserve fund while we discern what to do. But how do we, we're wondering those questions. How can we be more anti-racist as a church? What does it mean for the valleys to be filled and the, and the mountains lowered when it comes to racism? How does this look? Because we're not just interested in beliefs. We're not just interested in right action. We're not just interested in your prayers of forgiveness. We're interested in outcomes, results. We want to bear fruits of repentance. 
Now, why do we want to bear fruits? To make a way for the Lord so that people know who Jesus is. We do this so that all flesh can see salvation. We do this, and flesh is an important word, right? We, make, we care about material things because we're material. We're real people. People need to... Following Jesus and salvation, all these things that we say, God's going to save you from death. Christians need to offer a tangible expression of that now. If all you face is death in church and oppression in church, it doesn't sound like we're really serious about what we're talking about. We do this work so that the world can know that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is replacing the political order. You know, if you want to talk about evangelism, this is what he's talking about. So the whole world can see. That's what it is. The church does that. Then people will know that Jesus is Lord. The work we're doing and the pain that it brings is so that the gospel can be proclaimed. We're preparing a way for the Lord to come. We are remembering when Jesus was first born, yes, but we are hopeful for what is next. We yearn for Jesus to come into this world now. And until then, we're co-laborers with the Spirit as we keep preparing the way for the Lord. Let's make the path straight together. Let's fill the valleys, lower the hills, smooth out what's rough. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.